So, as the overhead says, it's a tale of two cities. Um, so, before I start, I might just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for church, uh, whether it's uh, in an above-ground building or an underground catacomb church. Just thank you that we can meet freely. Thank you that we can preach your words, sing your praises, pray to you one-on-one. -on -one. Just uh, now ask for, uh, I just ask now for clarity of what I'm saying and that your truth will speak through me. Well, it's lovely to be back again. Um, this is more like the country churches, very small, intimate. I was just blown away by, um, by uh, uh, Ashfield again, but I'll get over it. <laughs> so, to start with, um, all of us, uh, we tend to be shaped by our circumstances and surroundings. Our friends and their opinions, the relentless bar barrage of the media and its secular bias, our work culture, our work colleagues, even our time following hobbies and interests. And all of these things can take our heart and head away from church, from away from God. Then on the other side of the balance scales are our Christian friends, our church, our time in the Bible, and our praising, praying time with God. It comes down to a choice, sometimes even daily. We are faced with these two alternatives. Do I stay focused as a Christian on the thing that God is building for eternity, the eternal building project of the new creation, or do I stay in the world? Or can I share my story where I had just that choice? And warning notice, this is a story of failing and then being corrected and turning back to God. Just like the exiles, in Babylon, it's so easy for another culture, the world, to influence you in subtle and not so subtle ways. My family and I were blessed to live in another culture for two and a half years during my mining days. The country we were in was Peru. We got right into the culture. So much so that we started to drift from our home culture. And it took a bit of work to recenter when we returned. Taking on a new culture and its ways of doing things is easy to do for sure. It gets under your skin, but you don't stop being who you are. Being God's people should be our, past, should be our universal passport into all the cultures in his created world. I know all this now, but that's not how it played out for us in Peru for the Wood family. You see, the rest of my story when we lived in South America was that our Christian lives suffered. I used the excuse that there was no English-speaking church. I stopped reading the Bible. Uh, we stopped praying together as a family. In fact, my walk with God suffered as did my families because the world culture and thinking that crept into my life. It's just that sort of thinking that God is speaking to here in Zechariah 2. Look at what he says in verse 6 and 7. Flee from the land of the north, escape you who live in Babylon. That's not just a change of location, but a change of thinking. God's people have been three generations in Babylon. They are Jewish in name only, but in truth they are mostly Babylonian in nature. 
God wants them to be something different. To find out what that is, let's go slowly through Ezekiel chapter 2. To help us, it may be useful to break up the text into the following parts. Number one, God's building plan, not ours, verses 1 to 5. Number two, your home is waiting, verses 6 to 9. Number three, the nations, verses 10 to 12. And finally, be still, verse 13. So to begin with, Zechariah looks up and in his field of sight is a man holding a measuring line. Zechariah enters into his own dream vision and asks the man where he's going. Where are you going with this tool? He gets a straightforward answer. The man is off to measure Jerusalem. And by measure, it means exactly that. How long, how wide, verses 1 and 2. Even if Jerusalem is a smallish city by today's standards, we're probably talking about 800 metres by 800 metres. That's a lot of walking and laying out of rope. You have to admire this guy's energy and drive. It seems the man is starting what God said he would do in chapter 1, verse 16. God says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So now back to verse 3, chapter 2. The first messenger angel leaves Zechariah and is met by another angel. Suddenly, there's a conference of sorts between the angels. The big boss has sent a direct message to his field worker that needs to be passed on urgently. Stop. Stop that man, verse 4. Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because the great number of people and animals in it in the time of the Old Testament prophets, and even in Jesus' time, a city without defensive walls was unheard of. Of course you need walls for defence and to mark out the limits of your kingdom and to keep all your precious things safe and secure. God, however, doesn't think this way. He says in verse 5, And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord and I will be the glory in her midst. In other words, he'll be with his people and protect them. Here God is emphasising protection. It makes sense in a way, because God's people of Ezekiel and Zechariah's time had only known war and dislocation. God is saying he'll be a better wall, a wall without limits, a wall that will never fall down. They can never be breached. And more importantly, his glory will be within those walls. We've seen this image before, haven't we? Of a pillar of fire and God's glory in their midst during the Exodus. Remember how God's visible presence led them away from danger and his holy presence was with them in the tabernacle in Exodus 13. We're starting to see that God has another building project in mind. You see, the exiles who returned from Babylon and other parts of the former Babylonian Empire returned to a broken and desolate homeland. They knew they had to rebuild. And the first building project should be the destroyed temple. 
the temple of the Lord. But the project had stalled. And now they were asking, how big should it be? Do we have the funds? Do we have the manpower to make it like it was before? God, through this dream vision, is telling his return people to look up, to look further and see a bigger picture that God has planned. Measuring the city at this point in time was premature. God is saying that Jerusalem will be much bigger than you think. And it'll be, and I, God, will be there to protect you. So come back. So where and how do all these people come from? All these people to reside in the new future Jerusalem. Well, if we look at verses 6 to 9, we'll see. The opening of uh, the next section starts with the invitation, come, come. This is tied to that verse in chapter 1, uh, verse 13. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. God is on a recruitment drive. I'm just picturing a, a recruitment poster right now. Um, God, come, come, walls, a bit like the posters in the world, World War II. He is jealous for his people to return to the promised land, the land that God had set aside west of the Jordan for his people to live and prosper in. And as an earthly example of God's new Eden to the nations around it. You see, not all the Israelite exiles in Babylon accepted uh, King Darius's offer to be returned to their homeland. More stayed behind than returned. Then there are the Israelite exiles taken to Assyria, which is north of Judah, and some exiles are still in Egypt in Zechariah's time. And the, return to, and the call to return is also urgent. See the emphasis again in verse 6, flee. You can't help but be reminded of the many times in the Old Testament that characters, good and bad, are fleeing, either to a safe city or from imminent danger. God is serious when he says flee. Free, flee from the land of the north. But wait a minute. Wasn't Babylon defeated in 539 and the benevolent King Darius of Persia had taken over? Well, yes. But the problem is that all the exiles in Judah aren't really Israelites anymore. They're probably the great-grandchildren of the generation that went into captivity. They are, in fact, more Babylonian than Israelites. So what is God telling them to flee from then? It's not a physical thing, but it's a state of mind, a state of heart. God wants them to flee from the culture, the Babylonian gods, the Babylonian way of thinking and living. All that is Babylon. This Babylon thinking is a big deal in the Bible. It crops up seven times in Revelation alone. Anytime Babylon is referenced in the Bible, it's essentially a depiction of being anti-God. So in verse 7, this Babylon thinking is given a name. It's called Daughter of Babylon. The key to how God views the Babylon thinking and living of his people is in verses 7 to 9. The text is a bit tricky, but worth the time to wrestle with it to get an understanding. In the ESV translation, verse 7 starts with an imperative. Up! 
escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Sounds a lot like flee and come, come from before, doesn't it? Verse 8 is a little bit hard to understand in parts, but essentially God will punish those nations who have conquered and oppressed his people, who have become God's enemies. And then there's this beautiful imagery in verse 8, and it's written to signpost God's protection of his people. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye is the gate or opening of the eye, referring to the pupil. Our eye, the eye, our eye is sensitive to touch and so is the object of super special care. The point being made is that God's people are special to him and he is sensitive to what threatens them. It's such an amazing truth that us believers are so special to, to the Lord God to, do, to be described as a pupil of God's eye. That is something else. In verse 9, the Lord will raise his hand against Israel's enemies. God will bring about a reversal of the fortunes of the people. The Israelites who were slaves of the nations that plundered them will now do the plundering of those nations. In essence, God is coming to dwell with his people. So they should leave Babylon and its influences and come home because they are precious to God. And be, be warned, he will destroy his enemies so it's foolish to remain with them. In contrast to the daughter of Babylon, who will be destroyed, verse 10 describes the future for the daughter of Zion, that is God's people. It will be a complete opposite, which is reason to celebrate. Verse 10 is a call to all the nations. I just wonder, as Zechariah is being taken along in this exciting dream vision, if he's talking in his sleep at this point. And there's a big smile on his face. See the next section, verses 10 to 12. It starts with an emphatic, shout and be glad, or more literally, sing and be glad. The present and future exiles are now called daughter of Zion, no longer daughter of Babylon. And of course they'd be called daughter of Zion because the God of the universe will come will now come to live among them, live among us. And see who will be joining the returning exiles in that future day? The nations. God has his heart set for the nations. In fact, in Genesis 15, sorry, in Genesis 17, we see this laid out. No longer shall you be called Abraham, sorry, Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. In Zechariah here in chapter 2, God is saying he will return to them. Why are the returned exiles so longing for the return of God's glory? Well, partly it's their generational memory. They know deep down that this is the best and the only way forward. Just as the Lord, just as the Lord had said back in Genesis 49:10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. There is a promise here that something big will happen to God's people in, in Judah. The unknown is just when and exactly how. But even so, we see God's promise on his return in verses 10 and 11, that 
Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and, sh and shall be my people, and I will dwell in their midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. God has always had a missional heart for the nations of the Old Testament, and that doesn't change in the New Testament or even today. We see it so clearly several, several hundred years after Zechariah's time in Jesus' ministry. For example, in Mark 7, there's Jesus' interaction with the Greek woman, the Samaritan woman in, in John 4, and in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. The nations that had and will persecute God's people, people from all these nations will be won over for Jesus. They will be part of God's future restored eternal kingdom. Okay, so in chapter 2, so far, we are told to be running. That's the flee reference. And then we, we are told to be standing up. That's the up escape reference. And last, lastly, singing. That's the sing and be glad reference. And all these things are directed to our great God, the God of all things. But there's one more thing to do. See, in verse 13, we are told to be still. The chapter, chapter 2, began with a flurry of busyness by the man and the angelic messengers and finishes with a command to be still. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God is on the move and it is toward us. For he's chosen Israelites, how are they meant to be still? Well, God is coming from heaven to dwell, to judge, to make a people. For us, on this side of the cross, God came to earth as Jesus. He lived and tabernacled with us and then died for us. He left his Holy Spirit to abide in us. And this knowing of God's grace and love is enough for us to be still, to stop and be silent. There's nothing we could say that would add anything to this undeserved grace. There is nothing we can say or do that adds one iota to God's grace and love. Be still and rest in this undeserved grace. So we be still. The gospel that we heard as sinners was not about us. God had nothing to hear from us. Our God silences our protests of innocence, our defences of our motives and behaviour, our protests of our own real goodness or boasting of our achievements. All that must stop before we can come to God in faith. All of us, all mankind, needs to ultimately be still and listen to God, to gaze upon God, to come to know God before he gives us anything to say or sing. So what should be our main takeaways from the text? I think there's three, and they are, number one, we need to, to reach around to those of us who are in exile from God, from the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, I think I can confidently say that church is not about these four walls. They work great as a meeting place for several hours every week. They keep the rain and sun off us. They keep the outside noise down to a bearable hum. But as people who love and serve the Lord Jesus, 
we know that the heartbeat of our life together is that God himself is among us in all his his glory. In 2 2 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Our church, that's you, me, all of us, we need to reach around to those here in Petersham who are in a sense also exiles. They are in exile from God. The world is in such a mess and it's looking for peace and stillness. Here God tells us that peace and stillness can be found in him. We have such a valuable treasure to reveal to those who come to know Jesus. God tells us that peace and stillness can be found in him. We have such a valuable treasure to reveal to those who come to know Jesus. They too can be still to trust and enjoy him. They too can be the apple of his eye. Number two, we need a right attitude in but not of the world. We have every reason for living well in Christ's kingdom now. The proper response the Lord's certain protection is to separate from the world that is puff, that is sentenced to judgment. Since God's people are part of the world destined for glory, we should not grow comfortable with that part of the world destined to pass away. So you, so you see, it's foolish for God's people to side with the world that's passing away. Passing away. Our response should be to flee remove ourselves to run away from worldly thinking and living and number three our church us we must be involved with bringing the gospel to the nations just under 90 years ago three young men left SMBC for Amazonia in Brazil to spread the gospel the three friends as they were known felt compelled to travel outside their local area, their town, their state, even even their own country, to tell the nations of the gospel. Fast forward to today, and according to the past census, the nations are here. For those who are born outside Australia, now living in in Ashfield, or Petersham, are Chinese, 12%, Nepalese, 7%, Indians, 3%, Filipinos, 3%, and English too, and that's just a small subsection. 
We who know that God is sovereign over all things, over all decisions, has purpose that the nations have come to Australia. This is happening right across the Western world. Is God showing and telling us something? As well as speaking the gospel to the nations, we are also to sing and shout, or in effect, rejoice and proclaim the gospel. So this is what we are commanded to do in Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.